on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho. Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. All right, this week, Maestro Enrico Lopez Yanez goes inside the huddle with Weston and Oliver. The Mexican-American conductor is slated to conduct Chicago Opera Theater's season finale, but is also the star of his own Space Pirate web series. Plus, two-minute drill, big money lands in L.A., Jonathan Dove's opera Flight takes off in Seattle. Got a great show for you. Oliver Camacho in the Zoom room with me. <laughs> in the Zoom room? Where is the Zoom room? Um, that was we weird, are all in that, the Zoom That's okay. Room. We're, we're sort of floundering today because we don't have Ashley to ground us. So. <laughs> She's the glue that holds us together. So. <laughs> yes. Matt Cummings here, of course, as well. Great to see you, Matt. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm already I've already started my Olympics countdown, but I won't uh talk about how excited I am for it. But don't jinx more it more than this. Already exactly. North we know North Korea is not participating, which is a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> there goes the Weston countdown. Williams, how are you feeling about the Olympics, Weston? Oh, I'm feeling pretty good. Uh I'm I'm pretty sure that it might happen this year, which is exciting. And uh Ashley wanted you all to know that uh Razorbacks are sports. <laughs> Major League Baseball in full swing. Uh, both the Texas Rangers and the Chicago Cubs below 500 at this point. A lot Strong of start. baseball left to play. A lot of baseball. Oh, and by the way, oh, the French Opera, the French Opera, the French Open got a yellow card. <laughs> they delayed their start by another week. So, but at least they're not getting COVID. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. We just found out that Enrico Lopez Yanez uh, is in Chicago uh, to conduct La Hija de Rapacini, which is the season finale of the Chicago Opera Theater. And they'll be performing that opera for the skeletons at the Field Museum. <laughs> <laughs> and we were so lucky to literally catch Maestro Lopez Yanez uh, between rehearsal and one of the many other things that he does. Uh, many, many other things he does. <laughs> in doing just a little bit of research about Maestro Lopez Yanez, we found out that he started his own media production company, which also publishes uh, resources for schools and for orchestras mm -hmm. called Symphonica Productions. He also is the host of his own podcast for conductors called Upbeat. We're and not insecure about it at all. <laughs> and for uh, his position at the Nashville Symphony, he does two web series, one called Classical Cocktails, uh, where he matches cocktails with pieces of music. <laughs> and he does a um, web series for children on how to make music uh, at home with things you could find around the house. Like, uh, like there's really an episode about washing out cans of tuna and putting b balloons on top of them and using them like drums. And it's, I mean, he's just doing a lot, <laughs> including uh, his own space pirate web series for uh, symphonic productions, which we will sample a little bit right now. And when we come out of this, 
uh, we'll talk to uh, Enrico will begin by talking about how he got into all of this uh, new media. The name Puccini the Pirate. Pleasure to meet ya. Pleasure to meet you. Looks like you're having some trouble with that chest there. The blasted thing won't open. Some sort of mysterious symbols here on the lock. Some sort of combination, I suppose. Can't seem to get it up. Mind if I take a look? I suppose you can take a look. Oh, those aren't funny symbols. Those are actually music notes that are spelling out a rhythm. Rhythm? So in addition to your conducting career, which is formidable, uh, you are doing a lot of thinking about how to access the audience and how to engage the audience and also how to uh, keep your colleagues um, you know, engaged especially during the pandemic. Uh, so to that end, you have this conductor's uh, podcast called Upbeat. Uh, you have the Symphonica Productions, which um, is another audience engagement project that publishes and also does videos of you dressed as a pirate in space, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, for Nashville Symphony, you do a fun little uh, matching cocktails with uh, orchestral music. And then you have this children's series, which is so adorable. It feels a little bit like Bill Nye, the science guy, <laughs> where you <laughs> you teach children how to make music. And it's called Making Music with Enrico. So um, I guess the conversation right now is, um, how did you get started with all this new media? And did Nashville realize that you had the potential uh, with the, being in front of a camera and just being very accessible and ask you to do these additional things besides be the conductor to do the cocktail thing <laughs> and the making music thing? Sure. I, well, I mean, to be honest, a lot of the media stuff comes just from the hobbies I had as a kid growing up. Um, and thankfully, I feel so lucky that now I get to incorporate all the things that I loved doing as a kid into what I do for quote unquote work, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, I did everything from playing in rock bands, performing in mariachi ensembles, klezmer groups, uh, being at one point, Are you oh, half yes. Jewish? My mother's side is Jewish. And, oh, wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and then things like, you know, I, I hosted a radio show one semester. I DJed at parties. I used to be in a, a boy band electronic hip hop duo. Uh, you name it. I kind of <laughs> did a little bit of everything. Um, so, you know, I, I took film classes at the local community college because I, I loved acting and doing film production stuff. And then lo and behold, years later, I'm working for symphony orchestras and stuff and, and realize, oh, I have some skill sets that would be helpful to the advancement and development of our hopefully institution, but maybe even industry. And I also happen to enjoy doing them. So why not put those skills to use? I mean, it, as we all know, in the sphere of non-for-profits, we have very limited, limited resources and all of our colleagues and our team members are already stretched very thin. So any opportunity to be passionate and excited about going beyond just the basic job description, you know, take advantage of that clause that says and other duties as assigned, just assign yourself <laughs> some duties and start creating all these new opportunities was kind of my uh, pathway forward. So it, it, uh, obviously you're very passionate about all of your uh, your projects. I mean, just, you know, taking the initiative to dive into so many things. Is there one in particular that you'd like to dive into and describe for us? 
Sure. Um, I, I, why don't we maybe talk about Symphonica a little? I mean, that's one sure. that has spanned both pre-pandemic and then had to shift during and, the and pandemic. To clarify, this is the Space Pirate one, right? So this is the Space Pirate <laughs> one, which is, which is, well, actually, I will say it actually did start because of the space element. I was going to say it didn't start with Space Pirates, but it did start with space. So when I was working <laughs> for the Omaha Symphony, which was my per- first professional job as their assistant conductor, uh, I started really getting into the idea of creating a new style of family and education concerts. The Omaha Mm. Symphony has just an amazing history of putting on these very sort of theatrical and engaging shows for kids. And when I had the opportunity to jump in and dress up for my first kids concert, I was like, this is great. I get to act. I get to (laughs) conduct. I get to be goofy. I loved it. Um, So then I said, okay, how could we take this one step further? And that's when I started to incorporate some of my experience in doing, you know, student films and things like that. I said, people love media. Why don't we get some of the actors in person, some on screen? Why don't we show us traveling throughout our space? And we created this whole space show called Symphony in Space, uh, where the evil Lieutenant Tritone was trying to destroy the galaxy. <laughs> and so... Cadet Enrico, along with his sidekick A440, the robot, had to go around and the cadets of the audience and protect the galaxy from the evil <laughs> Lieutenant Triton. So that Star was Star very... Wars Who. Star <laughs> Wars This is who. very canon because, you know, Weston actually loves Tritones. He'd be like, you know, why is Tritone bad? And like, I'm an early music guy, so like 440 is actually not so great. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we don't have rebels and we just have either, you know, people who hate tritones, people who hate A440. Um, so we decided, uh, my, my business partner and I decided, well, maybe this is something that other orchestras could benefit from is having these shows sort of packaged and available to them. Mm. So that's what the company started out as. We started by building family and education shows where I would write scripts and create visuals and, uh, all of these sort of more interactive versions of, basically stretching what Leonard Bernstein used to do with the New York Philharmonic for kids, but bringing it into the next millennium. Um, And from there, we started to expand into creating Pops productions that are available and and other fun sort of side engagement activities. Then the pandemic hit, and the first project we started to do with Symphonica is like, well, you know, what if we made a little online mini series based around this sort of same concept? And so that's where this whole, you know, space pirate thing that you're alluding to <laughs> came into play. We're like, okay, we're going to do these little mini episodes that are educational because one, the symphony right now cannot reach our normal audience. And what is inevitably the first thing that schools and, you know, extracurriculars get cut? It's, it's music. So yeah. maybe we can have these sort of, you know, even though you're doing learning at home, maybe parents will show some of these videos to their kids and they can keep learning about rhythm or dynamics or these other basic building blocks of music during this time. And the other side of that was the expansion of the company. As a part of our business model, what we do is we create these books of music that has all of the excerpts and script incorporated into it to make it really easy for the orchestras to perform these programs. Mm-hmm. We said, well, we already have the capability. Why don't we expand the company and start doing a publishing aspect as well? So that's mm. what we did. We wanted to partner with you know a lot of my colleagues who I know were other conductors that were already creating arrangements and compositions. 
And especially during the middle of the summer, we started to look for other ways to give opportunities to lesser known or underrepresented voices to the table. Uh, so we started reaching out to other young and up and coming composers, composers of underrepresented communities and saying, hey, you know, orchestras are dying to have music by other people that aren't just dead white guys. And unfortunately, a lot of these people have not been given a platform. So maybe we can provide a platform for them at not only that, but at an accessible price point so that orchestras can also perform the music. Because that's the other problem is that, right. sure, you can contact, you know, I won't list XYZ uh, publishing company. And sometimes the rental costs are just astronomical. And if yeah. you're a local community orchestra or even, you know, a tier five orchestra, you just can't afford to be paying $2,000 to rent one 10 minute piece for your concert. Yeah. So that was sort of the business model and the genesis of those projects. That's Symphonica Productions, and you should check out Enrico's website and where you can see a link to all of his various platforms. <laughs> but the idea of serving um, underserved communities is a great place to pivot. Um, you're in Chicago right now because you have been brought on to conduct the season finale, their online season, uh, an opera by Daniel Catan called La Hija de Rapacini, which I had never heard of until like last week when I got the press release or two weeks ago, whatever it was. I had never um, heard of it too until two months ago or whatever when I got brought on. So you're, you're good So um, the original season was supposed to include uh, Catan's Il Postino. And so I'm glad that they kept a Spanish language opera in their, you know, pandemic pivot season. And in general, I want to say I laud Chicago Opera Theater for really thinking carefully about how they are, what it means to be an American opera company in the 21st century. Yeah. And since Lydia Yankovskaya has come on, I've really been just elated about all the new talent and new voices uh, and new ideas that have been coming to the stage. Um, I feel like you've been swept up into this and you as a... A Latino, I guess we established that you're half Jewish and half Mexican. That's right. Uh, have been brought on so that the creative team uh, is a Spanish-speaking creative team. Um, but the issue then remains, though, is that opera is still a very white and older and conservative core audience. Uh, what do we have to do to uh, keep them, you know, engaged while also reaching out to? Spanish-speaking audience, for example. Of course. I mean, this is something that is not just an issue and concern in the opera world. It's in the symphonic world. It's in ballet. It's in theater. I mean, you name it. This is something that I think arts administrators, conductors, uh, everyone is thinking about and it's on everyone's mind. Um, to me, the core thing is making sure that, one, we provide platforms and opportunities where members in our community can see themselves. They can relate to these things. They can see themselves in the programming. They can see themselves on stage too, is the other thing. You know, just to say we're going to do a Spanish opera, but it, we aren't going to have any native Spanish speakers would be doing another, you know, injustice to, to the works. Uh, right. Same thing with programming composers from a variety of backgrounds and cultures and countries. So I think that's the first thing is to provide a voice to the people who have for so long not had a voice and a platform from which to share their art. The other thing is continued engagement and continued opportunities for that. Uh, for so long, you know, 
many orchestras, for example, will have a Martin Luther King concert in February. Right. In October, I'll get hired to do a Hispanic Heritage Month concert at whatever orchestra or company it may be. Fine. But really is going to that community one time a year and saying, here's your concert. There you go. That's just tokenism. I mean, <laughs> we that served is not, you. Yeah. Back to the white people. Yeah. To the, yeah. I mean, no, that's not going to do it. So showing if this is truly something that your organization is passionate about and mm-hmm. truly something they prioritize, then make it a priority. Make it a continuous effort. Make it more than just a one off event. Um, and there are so much music and opportunities out there to be discovered and programmed that yes it takes a little extra work you have to do some digging and you have to do some research but the music's out there it's just maybe it hasn't been done as much or and that that also means that the audience is out there and and being okay with trying new things and do doing things that maybe seem a little risky on paper if we don't risk now when will we and if we don't then how can we expect different results if we keep doing the same thing over and over again? What has worked so far for you or what have you seen out there in the U.S. that have been solid initiatives that have you know given results to whatever, an orchestra or an opera company? Sure. Um, I think one thing is making sure to not think of ourselves as all-knowing. Let's let's take a step back and realize that we don't have all the answers. So if we don't engage with our community and have dialogues with different organizations within the community, I can't just sit here and say, I know exactly what the Mexican community wants. I'm I'm just one person in the community. And I certainly can't tell you what the Portuguese community or the Chilean community or the Ecuadorian community, because I am not those things. And all of those are different countries, are different people with different backgrounds, with different Mm -hmm. interests. So if I really want to serve them, I need to go into the community and give them an opportunity to speak with us and find ways that they want to hear uh, their works being performed or their other organizations being incorporated into the fold. Um, You know, for a long time, organizations have said, oh, we're going to go into the community and we're going to perform Beethoven or we're going to perform this Rossini opera. And <laughs> and it, we're doing a great job. We're serving the Latino community because we did it at the, you know, cultural center. And it's like, well, you've just come and said, here, you must like Rossini. That That's not serving them. That's telling well, it them. It really well, is, actually. Well, but... <laughs> <laughs> well certified so... Rossini stan, Oliver Camacho. Behind me, I was like 50% Rossini. So. <laughs> it's serving Oliver specifically. So that's, right. that's your representation. But, you know, have a conversation and maybe they'll have some ideas of collaborations that you would have never thought about. And companies more and more, I think, are opening up to the idea of partnerships and collaborations with other arts institutions and other, you know, local musicians and things like that. That's where real growth happens. And I think that's where there's a real amount of excitement and potential for really getting the community involved and making it feel like they aren't simply being told what they should like, but they're actually being brought to the table as a partner. And that's really important. Um, and I've always looked at the number of Spanish speakers I come across in cities like Chicago, like Dallas, um, and and just sometimes just felt a little bit ashamed because I, I look at my collection of operas and classical music and there's maybe five 
works in Spanish total in there. Uh, I mean, we were, we're always on the show and everyone always makes fun of me because I'm always mispronouncing French and Italian, but I, <laughs> I don't even get a chance to, to, to do Spanish language. And it's, it's such a missed opportunity because there's, there's so much, uh, it, it's the, one of the biggest language groups in this country and it's not, being served, but I was wondering if there were any specific works that you know of that are being underproduced or you think should be produced um, that uh, that really speak to uh, that community or, or or even just in Spanish. Anything sure. along those lines you could recommend for our listeners? Yeah, of course. I mean, on the opera world, you know, Daniel Catan is one of the sort of stars of mm -hmm. particularly Mexican opera. His biggest hit, of course, is Florencia en el Amazon, which is a tremendous piece. Uh, if you haven't heard it, I'd say that's a great place to start in terms of knowing his works. And actually, the opera that our production is replacing, Il Postino, is also a tremendous work and really mm -hmm. great. That's a, a much bigger uh, work as well. Um, but Recently, there have been a lot of new exciting projects and commissions. Uh, Houston Grand Opera, just a few years back, commissioned and created this mariachi opera. It was mm. called Cruzar la Cara de la Luna, uh, Cross the Face of the Moon, uh, with which had a mariachi on stage with the singers and told <laughs> this really great story about sort of it was an immigration story based about mm. a, a, a divided family at the border. Um, so again, incorporating these sort of social justice issues that are very, very timely still to this day, of course, with this blended genre of music, which is really cool. Um, there are, of course, a lot of Spanish sarsuelas, so not necessarily Latin American, right. but you know, one of the most famous being Luisa Fernanda, which is one that is of the sarsuelas, one of the most popular ones, but is still not produced quite as often as it could be here mm -hmm. in the States. Um, and, and do you during... do you think that not to interrupt you, but if we were to produce sarsuela, who is that serving? Is it just because it's in Spanish? Is it really something that's relatable mm -hmm. to, you know, the Mexican community of Chicago or the Puerto Rican community of New York or you know, the Dominican communities, etc. Sure, I, I would say it's not necessarily serving them in terms of being something from their country, of mm -hmm. course, but right. it is bringing down a language barrier that, you know, often there are a lot of companies in the United States, for example, that only produce operas in English. They right. only create translations, but we don't have a lot of opera companies that are taking, you know, Cenerentola and then translating it into Spanish and performing it mm -hmm. in Spanish. So at that point, or even that are putting up Spanish supertitles or right. Spanish translations. So giving at least a, an access in terms of the language and making that an easier step, I do think is helpful as an introduction to then leading to, to further uh, development of truly Latin American opera and, and things like that. Because the other thing you have to realize is, you know, if you go somewhere like Mexico and you go to the opera there, the vast majority of the people in attendance are actually younger, millennial-aged people hmm. that make up the vast majority of the audience. So to say that, oh, there's there's no audience for opera in the U.S., it's like, no, there there is. We just have to realize that we have to make it accessible and we have to, again, have those conversations about finding out what people are interested in seeing from these other communities. Well, since La Hija de Rapacini is new to literally all of us, uh, is there something you could help us to, you know, to enrich our enjoyment of this show that we are all going to watch? Um, is it next week or two weeks from now? 
Yes, so it begins on April 24th. Okay. Uh, 7.30 is when the streaming starts. Uh, you know, Doc- Danielle Catan's music is this really unique kind of fusion between... There are these like Puccini-esque moments where he has these glorious sort of very operatic grand melodies and then a, a sense of modernism that comes. So, you know, Weston, mm. if you're a fan of tritones, there are a oh, lot of tritones. You know I am. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he finds this really great way of fusing the two throughout the works. The other thing is that when he wrote this opera specifically was during a time that he was actually living and studying music in Japan and had a lot of that influence in his music as well. So mm. the reduction version that we're performing is very unique because it's for an, it calls for an orchestra of two pianos, harp, timpani, and percussion. So it's Ooh. all percussion instruments. So you get a lot of different shimmering colors and uh, kind of unique accompaniments rather than what we would typically expect in you know a chamber orchestra or something small like that. This really has all these different unique timbres that really paint the pictures very well. I mean, everything that he says in the text is then accompanied by very specific musical moments to help paint everything that's happening in the scene. And that's kind of very unique to him and, and something that I've really loved about this work. And the production, I believe, will take place in, uh, is it the Field Museum? The Field um, Museum with the dinosaurs. Yeah, uh, which I imagine will heighten that sense of, of shimmer and because it's in the garden area, correct? That's right. It's in that main sort of big exhibit yeah, hall. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Have you had I a just, chance to rehearse love... in there yet? Not yet. Okay. So I, that will bring on, I'm sure, several challenges being in such a big, boomy space. I, I was but, just thinking, like, you know, with all those percuss- percussion-y instruments with the, the acoustics of that space, it could be really interesting. Oh, um, yeah. Uh, perhaps a challenge, but right. but I think it will sound amazing to the listener. I think so. I, we're, we're excited to, to, to be trying, again, something new and something uh, sort of out of the box or into a different box maybe because yeah <laughs> is there a way that um the stage director i forget her name already uh is how she crystal used, manage how crystal is using the space that would yes, be interesting it is so there are multiple uh scenes of course in the opera and so actually it's being filmed in different spaces so the main portion of the opera is in the exhibit hall, but parts of it take place in the hallway. And actually some of the scenes take place upstairs in a room that you can't see. So what's unique is that we'll actually have to be on in-ear monitors in order mm. for the musician or for the conductor and singers to be able to hear the orchestra and connect in time uh, because there won't be an actual visual connection as take place uh, in different rooms. So it should be interesting. I think. And when we watch this video, we also see a bunch of unsuspecting uh, museum visitors just wandering <laughs> through. It's like, is this a flash mob? What's going on? <laughs> is this La Hija de Rappuccini? <laughs> I listen to this thing all the time on Apple Music. I was, Wait, is isn't that guy with the stick, isn't that the space pirate? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, Maestro, I know you have to get going very soon, but I'd be remiss uh, if I did not ask you about uh, any sporting things in your life (laughs) (laughs) well put of course (laughs) as every good music interview ends sports question um (laughs) so do you have any uh favorite athletes or favorite teams are you excited about the olympics coming up or ah well maybe you look like a tennis guy how do you feel about tennis 
no. I enjoy okay. tennis. Okay. Watching, I'm I'm more of a enjoy doing and playing things rather okay. than watching too much. The you enjoy w- making um, sports up out of cans and rubber bands <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and balloons. Um, <laughs> I did follow recently, of course, in March Madness, uh, UCLA because that's my alma mater. So I'm a Bruins fan when it comes to college basketball, uh, which was a very exciting season recently. Um, when it comes to other sports during other times, the other thing I always get really into is the World Cup and supporting Mexico. Like a, like a good Mexican. Yes, yes of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a whole social experience involved in that. So, you know. Well, I feel like I'm more excited now about La Hia Rapacini, and I'm still having trouble saying it. Uh, but <laughs> um, thank you so much for coming on to Opera Box Score. Uh, it was great to meet you. And uh, I know that you're going to make a lot of new fans here in Chicago with your uh, charisma and your weird drums made out of tuna cans. <laughs> Unfortunately, those are not called for in the score by Danielle Catan. <laughs> but yeah, may- maybe the next time we'll... It's also upcycling. It's very environmental what that's you true, do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was my pleasure to be here. Weston, <laughs> can you name all of the movies in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. I don't think the directors of those movies can do that. <laughs> I don't think Johnny Depp can there's, do that. There's Curse of the Black Pearl. Okay, I, I think great. there's Dead Men Tell No Tales and Dead Man's Chest, which just boggles my mind. Opposite order, but yeah. Uh, there's... Um, at World's uh, End. At World's End, yeah. And then and there's then the there's other one. another one that is a movie. Write in your submissions now for what the <laughs> last Pirates of the Caribbean movie is called at operaboxscore.gmail.com. It's a disaster of a franchise. The kids and I watched every film in that series two summers ago and had a ball. We loved it. And yet you can't remember the name of the fourth movie. <laughs> I cannot. Kira Knightley was not in that one, right? Uh, that's true, I, yeah. I believe that's correct. Yeah, I kind of tuned out after that. Be honest. All right, two minute drills coming up right now. This just in the two minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. Los Angeles Opera has been given a $5 million jumpstart to their post pandemic seasons. Philanthropists Terry and Jerry Cole's gift will be used to mount an outdoor performance of Stravinsky's Oedipus Rex. That's for you, Weston. And they will be returning to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in September. Members of the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra, who went unpaid for nearly a year, are getting a hand from one of their old maestros. Fabio Luisi, the Met's erstwhile principal conductor for five years, has invited up to 50 of the Met musicians to Texas to join his Dallas Symphony for two concerts to benefit the Met Orchestra Musicians Fund and the Dallas Musicians COVID-19 Relief Fund. Opera di Roma has broken yet another streaming record with its filmed version of La Traviata. 967,000 viewers tuned in on April 9th to watch the film's premiere, directed by Mario Martone and starring Lizette Oropesa. A new post from opera singer Jeremy Osborne on Middle Class Artist takes aim at the classism inherent in the high cost of attendance at major U.S. conservatories. Osborne writes, quote, If these gatekeepers don't begin rapidly dismantling the financial barriers that exclude classical music's proletariat, there won't be enough foot soldiers to go to the ramparts for the art form. 
In a follow-up to Zach Finkelstein's investigative piece about the fat phobia of operatic gatekeepers, soprano and activist Tracy Cox shares her own experiences in the industry and calls for greater solidarity with the singers coming to terms with traumas they have experienced at all levels of opera. More and more, we recognize that our bodies are good and our talent is precious. If opera doubles down and refuses to embrace us, it will lose another generation of fat talent. It will force us to share our gifts in more inclusive mediums, writes Cox. We will not keep throwing our money, blood, sweat, and tears down the black hole of hatred. This season, Seattle Opera was scheduled to present Jonathan Dove's Flight. However, due to the pandemic, the company's performance space is off-limits to patrons, as is Seattle's Museum of Flight. But now, the two organizations have created an opportunity to bring the opera to the museum, film it there, and then stream it to audiences. This week's Yellow Cards. Scotland! The Scottish Opera plans for over 200 outdoor performances this summer, in alignment with the Scottish government timeline for easing restrictions. Plans include an outdoor Falstaff and a pop-up opera roadshow featuring the works of Gilbert and Sullivan. Spain, Teatro Real de Madrid is still planning on opening Peter Grimes on April 19th, despite 24 artists in the production having tested positive for COVID-19 during rehearsals. That's a red card. This week's red cards. Germany, the Bayerische Staatsoper has canceled all performances through April 27 due to the extension of the lockdown in Bavaria. Sweden, Swedish opera in Stockholm is closed for all operations through April 28th after a cluster of 15 positive cases in the company. Exit stage right Maria Adela Esteves Campos, singer and editor of Spanish opera website Diario Lirico, died last week at 58 after four months in the hospital with COVID-19. She published over 4,500 stories on her website, Diario Lirico. Lady Valerie Schulte, the first lady of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and widow of Sir George Schulte, has passed away at 83. First a British television presenter and part of the original team at the BBC, she later became a world-renowned arts patron. Renowned Irish soprano and pedagogue Veronica Ronnie Dunn has died at 93. After a successful career at Dublin Opera and Royal Opera House, she focused on voice teaching in Dublin where she trained international singers and was the namesake for the triennial Veronica Dunn International Singing Competition. She received the National Concert Hall uh, Lifetime Achievement Award in 2014. Czech opera soprano Jadwiga Wysochanska Strosova died in Prague at 93. She sang at the Czech National Theatre for over 30 years, where she performed the title roles of Smetna's Libuše, Dvorak's Rusalka, and Verdi's Aida, as well as other leading roles such as Donna Anna and Tatiana. Italian baritone Giorgio Gatti has died at 72 of COVID-19. Originally from Tuscany, he performed in all the major Italian houses and also appeared in a theatrical staging of the Julie Andrews film Victor Victoria. Soprano writer and music teacher Jane Marion Manning has passed at the age of 82. Known as the life and soul of contemporary British music, she was the founding member of Jane's Minstrels, an ensemble which specialized in contemporary music and participated in concerts and festivals across the globe. And on this day, April 12th, in 1710, Italian castrato Gaetano Majorano, also known as Caffarelli, was born in Bari. In 1826, it was the first performance of Karl Maria von Weber's opera Oberon at Covent Garden in London. In 1867, it was the first performance of Jacques Offenbach's La Grande Duchesse de Gerostine in Paris. 
1898, it was the birth of French soprano Lili Pont in Cannes. Happy birthday also to Austrian-based baritone Franz Mazura in Salzburg. He was born in 1924. English baritone Thomas Hemsley was born on this day in Colville in 1927. And three years later, in 1930, was the first performance of Leos Janacek's opera From the House of the Dead at the National Theatre in Brno. In 1933, we say happy birthday to Spanish soprano and Hall of Famer Montserrat Caballé in Barcelona. In 1948, it was the birth of Italian soprano Mariella de Villa in Chiusa Vecchia. And closing with one for Weston, as always, in 1978 on this day was the first performance of George Ligeti's opera Le Grand Macabre at the Royal Opera in Stockholm. Ah, yes, that old chestnut. That's your two-minute drill. The incredible Mariella de Villa in Aria that um, Rossini used a couple of times, but here from Le Nozze di Tete e Peleo. Not the, yeah. Yeah. Um, and if you find this entire video on YouTube, there's also a coaching that she has with Ricardo Chailly, uh working on this Aria. And it's like... Is that what you sound like when you're rehearsing? <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> I actually first discovered Maria Rivia when I was in college. And she's not a singer that you hear about uh, as like being one of these big names, you know, big personalities and whatnot. But she's a singer you learn about when you start to really like get go deep into. About what the human voice can do. Yeah. And she is a bel canto soprano par excellence she is really without a peer she's now 72 years old and she's still singing she's winding it down but she's like unofficially retired i think she's retired like the absolute hardest roles from her repertoire but still singing (laughs) normally difficult ones like anna bolena yeah but if you want to understand what bel canto really is the idea of you know putting everything into an Italianate vowel, the idea of blending the registers, the idea of the vibrato being the same speed, no matter what part of the voice you're in, and transitioning between registers without a blip. That is Maria de Villa. And when you hear that voice go up to the stratosphere, like a high E we just heard, or whatever that was, a high F. I think it's an F. Yeah. And the tone doesn't change. The vibrato is the same, and there's still a cover on those notes. You know, there are some sopranos who I love, like... Kathleen Battle, anything above a C sharp, it's open. You know, she can't help it. She just, God, that's her technique. But Malia de Villa, the tone almost gets darker the higher she goes. It's it's crazy. I love that voice. 
I am so into this production of Flight through Sienna Opera. It's a great piece, of course. It entered the repertoire, in my opinion, once it started to get into the music conservatory circuit. Great roles for all voice types. And it really, it's really a great acting piece. So, George, what you're saying is you will diss drive-in operas, but as long as someone comes in on a plane, you're okay with it. People are coming in on a plane. This is being streamed. But here's what's here's what's great about this production is that the bad version would be obviously doing it on a stage and filming it and editing it and then releasing that, right? Like we can all agree sure. we have largely moved through that part of art creation in the pandemic. The not so bad but still not great version would just be to go to like the wing of an airport and then just film the thing. But the real smart move here is to essentially put a frame on this piece and to film it in this museum of flight. So you create a community partnership with a local organization, mm -hmm. which has also suffered attendance through the pandemic. Um, watching the trailer, it's going to be on our website, operaboxscore.com. It's beautifully designed, largely it's beautifully lit and beautifully filmed. It's got a great creative team behind it. Viswa Subaraman is the conductor, Brian Stauffenbeel directing it. There's a separate film director and editor, Kyle Siago. I, I'm going to drop, I think it's 35 bucks to watch this. I really hope that this opera flight takes off. Oh, my God. <laughs> Thank you to everyone except Weston Williams, but especially uh, to Tracy Cox, who has written a follow-up to Zach Finkelstein's piece on middle-class artist about fat phobia and the, the gatekeeping that, re that, that really entails actual physical and mental health consequences to fat singers in this art form. Mm -hmm. And her piece I found incredibly powerful, really taking her own experience head on. She's not only a singer, she's an, she's an activist. And so this is, this hits very closely to home, but she's following up on the reaction to this piece that largely on social media from singers was, ex was positive and affirming that, you know, these are our experiences that we have had and we, like we see this piece and this piece sees us, but there were some others uh, whose names we won't name here who defended the status quo saying that the fact that there have been many fat singers that have been on stage means that there can't possibly be a problem. And I have a black friend. Yeah, I'm exactly. not racist. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And you all just want participation trophies. You don't want to do the real work. And she systematically dismantled that saying here is the kind of work that a thing that we've done here are the experiences that I have been put through and that no one should ever have to suffer at all, let alone in a place of employment where you're protected by the policies of, uh, uh, of sexual harassment and equal opportunity, but clearly not. And here's what I need everyone to do to make sure that we really are facing this problem head on and we're not just sweeping it under the rug and we're, that we're not going to accept this anymore. And I really, I applaud this piece. I applaud her courage and I agree. Yeah. I mean, if Zach is the person who provides the data and he can make data very, very incriminating, uh, Tracy's follow-up provides all the emotion and uh, it was triggering, you know, even for somebody who, whatever, I, I used to think I was heavy set. Uh, I mean, I have nowhere near the experiences that some people had with their weight, but I have some, maybe some body dysmorphia just to hear 
those words and the emotion and all of that um it was it was an intense piece to read but um tracy's tracy's writing i mean really cut you to the quick you know she does not pull any punches and that was so clear jeremy osborne mixing his metaphors a little bit perhaps on middle class <laughs> artists but so, oliver let i mean talk us through your, the, your take just as this. we were preparing this show today another article dropped on middle class artists this one written by a singer named jeremy osborne who's um worked at the deutsche opera and the komische opera in berlin uh he's talking about um how you know to enter into the arena of of opera, the classical education, the education we expect at places like Juilliard, for example, gets named. Um, you have to be of a certain class level, mm-hmm. um, financial class level, and so that makes it limiting. And he, you know, he backs it up with data. This is something that's not an original idea, but uh, here is another article about you know the entry level just to be considered uh, to turn your application for Juilliard. It's like one hundred and ten dollars. Like you know, and how many schools? have application fees like that like all of them (laughs) yeah yeah so it already eliminates a whole class of people who might you know be great artists but they can't even get their foot in the door with a school let alone for a young artist program or singing for an agent or singing for an opera house you know just to get started at the ground level there's the uh you know entry level application fee which is prohibitive And what I did really like about this piece is that it didn't just stop there, but it also, you know, uh, broke down a piece that we talked about a couple of weeks ago from Rolling Stone about how the real problem is the lack of career diversity and um, kind of modern day what it takes to be a musician life skills. And that's, you know, not entirely false. But what he points out here is that that kind of finger pointing only helps the people who are currently in power because they can say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Look, here's work all over the place. Why don't you just do it that way? And they don't have to change anything about the way that they're doing business, right. uh, which I thought I found to be a really astute observation. Weston, happy anniversary. Ah, uh, <laughs> Merry Christmas to me. I love La Grand Macabre and you are all wrong. <laughs> It's a delightful little piece. It's like right there on the edge of like, because you know, I feel I like we say anything about it. <laughs> we, I, I, I can see the judgment in your eyes, Oliver. I see George's <laughs> expressions. He I heard I, you I, talk about Mariella de Villa, something who <laughs> that would never turn up in Le Grand Macabre. <laughs> really, I'm just offended that we didn't use uh, Le Grand Macabre as the playout clip, but whatever. Um, but it, it's such a cool opera because three words for you. If this doesn't sell you. I don't know what to tell you. Car horn overture. I mean, what a delight. It's just fun for not the whole family. Very sexual, very you, weird. For you for keep everyone that word, delight. <laughs> Do you know what it means? It's so delightful. It's one in a in a, a number of operas that came out in the sixties and seventies, which uh, call themselves anti operas. Uh, there's another one by like, Penderecki that did one or two. You know, a lot of people were like really trying to break the mold, but really like ended up falling into just creating this new kind of opera convention. And it's just it's just so much fun with the car horns and the eclectic mix of sounds. It's really Legati moving away from his big microtonal cluster chords that we all know and love. But um, I feel like it might be a little bit more accessible with the car horns than perhaps that is. But uh, I dare I, I, still I say see the in your eyes. accessible as <laughs> Gilbert and Sullivan. <laughs> this is my dream come true. And even I will mask up and go to like the outdoor <laughs> 
Why are we letting the, him talk about Gilbert hill, and Sullivan again? The hills and the dales and the lochs of Scotland to watch <laughs> Scotland. Um, Scotland. To watch these uh, a, a trailer performance of of GNS. Although I was tickled, um, David Vicker is directing the outdoor production of Falstaff, and this is a sentence I never thought I would see in a press release. This is from the uh, Scottish Opera's general director. Alex Riedick, who says, quote, uh, Falstaff will be a love letter to our glorious art form. Sir David McVicker offers an amazing vision for our car park. <laughs> Can't car horn overture, I'm telling you. <laughs> so I, I can't speak to what David McVicker's Falstaff is going to be like, but uh, count me in for a, a uh, outdoor Gilbert and Sullivan. All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call. Oliver, I know your soup is already on. Talk to us. Good call, bad call. Not that she needs any help, but Rhiannon Giddens' episode of Aria Code <laughs> with Latonia Moore talking about um, Aida was operatic podcasting at its best. I have to say it was a brilliant episode and Latonia Moore was an incredible guest. Um, I have to, I recommend it. You have to go listen to it. Matt Cummings. One thing that you shouldn't listen to is the new orchestrations that they're proposing for the Phantom of the Opera when it reopens in London, which cuts the pit in half. Ugh. And Garbage. that musical is cheesy enough already without re- without relying on synthesizers to play half of the instruments. Don't do it. Bad call. Weston Williams, anything on your good call, bad call plate? Carhorn Overture, baby. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I got a good call this week. My son did, in fact, win his fifth grade NCAA pool. Uh, you know what? Daddy so is young. just Daddy's just so proud of you. Uh, Could I borrow 20 bucks? That's it for this week's edition of America's talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen our bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes at operaboxscore.gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite that show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is a home run! Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editors, Weston Williams. For your co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you do your taxes. We're back with an all-new show next week when baritone Quinn Kelsey joins us inside the huddle to talk Verdi, Hawaii, and other things that also end in the letter I. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and the return of Ashley Hardgrave. Join us.